over a long period of time, the difference between money that is not working for you and money that is working for you is gigantic. It's called compounding. Do you want a million or do you want 260K in 30 years? Our guest today is Michele Ferrario, previous CEO of Zalora, Asia's leading online fashion destination. Now the mastermind behind Stashaway, the first digital wealth platform in Southeast Asia with over 1 billion US dollar in assets under management. If you make small bets, you might be lucky, you might not be lucky. If you're talking about 5% of your money, that's fine, it's play money. But if you're talking about your retirement plan, that's not fine. Don't look at the markets, diversify, invest over time, dollar cost average, whether the markets are up, down, right or left, it doesn't matter. The problem is that you don't see it next month. You don't see it the following month. You don't see it in five months from now. We seek instant gratification. We don't have the intrinsic motivation to actually have this long-term goal and keep at it, keep at it. Can you spill the beans and tell us what are the few key principles that new investors need to understand? Yeah, so look, the way I think. So, Michele, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Kevin. How are you doing? I'm good. All good. It's, uh, it's been an interesting 2023. Good start of the year. What's been interesting about it? I mean, from a professional perspective, as you know, uh, as the co-founder and CEO of Stash Away, I manage an investment platform. And therefore, I look at markets, global markets, you know, equities, bonds, and whatever else, quite often, and 2023 has been quite interesting so far uh, because a lot of most people were expecting a negative start of the year. In reality, it's been quite positive yeah. and uh, driven by, you know, just a few stocks. So it's been quite interesting. Where do you think we're going? Because actually it's true, even now, we, there is so much fear about, you know, the next big crash, the, this, is, this time is different, the... The, this debt deflation and it's not only you know often we have in investing there is the older market commentators people that usually you do better when you go against the crowd but this time we even have you know Stan Druckenmiller one of the best investment manager of all time who is actually very worried about what's happening so what's your take I mean obviously like no one knows but like what's your take on on my take is nobody's not, nobody knows. And therefore, my take is that you shouldn't think that you know. And What uh, do you do when you don't know? What you do, what you don't know is you do the right thing. And the right thing is to don't look at the markets, diversify, invest over time, dollar cost average, whether the markets are up, down, right, or left, it doesn't matter. You just keep investing in a diversified portfolio. You're not making small bets. Because if you make small bets, you might be lucky, you might not be lucky. And yeah. you only know after the fact. And if you're talking about 5% of your money, that's fine. It's play money. But if you're talking about your retirement plan, that's not fine. Yeah. So you do the old, boring, unproven methodology. Exactly. And, uh, you know, it's, there is a, one of my favorite quotes. I actually don't know who, who, who said it, but one of my favorite quotes on investing is that investing should be as exciting as watch grass grow. Ah, okay. I, 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 okay. I hear the one where the, 
It's very similar. Investing should be as a watching paint dry. I also know that yeah. one. Yes. Yeah. You know, watching grass grow or watching <laughs> paints dry. That's the definition of investing. And I agree with that. The problem is that because that's boring, the industry around it has built excitement. And how do you build excitement? You build excitement by saying, okay, today by this and tomorrow by this other thing. And That's most of the industry makes money out of transaction. 100%. So the industry makes most of the money out of making you buy and sell, buy and sell, buy and sell stuff, yeah. whether it's funds, whether it's stocks, whether it's whatever it is, right? And and that you don't make money, but the industry makes a lot of money. Yeah. And, uh, and that's what you should not be doing. And then you couple that with our generation where we're living in this instant gratification where this social media world where we are basically all these dopamine hits everywhere and we need not only we love we 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 don't like the boring but we we love and we need the kicks and the highs and therefore buying the latest meme stock or shit coin or is exciting and even if we end up losing money we actually take the whole thing as a big joke you no know? but it's very human look let's look at what's happening right now right so you know as as i guess you know uh the, the stock of the year is nvidia yeah you know, cheap manufacturer yeah. and i don't know the exact numbers but you know the the, the stock grown by more than 100 i don't know exactly yeah. the number over the course of the last few months Uh, and it's very human that as you read it, you're like, oh, wow, I wish I would have bought and I would have put all of my money in NVIDIA in January and now I would have doubled it. Yeah. Instead, I put in this diversified portfolio and I only made 6% <laughs> or 8% or whatever that is, right? Yeah. And uh, and and that's very human. Yeah. Now, when... And, And I, and I don't know what's going to happen to Nvidia. Eh? Maybe it's going to, you know, dominate the world. And yeah. you know, and but because but, this makes sense at least with the AI narrative, there is a, a short a shortage of uh, chips and absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I'm at not least there is an underlying narrative yeah. that yeah. makes sense that it's yeah. not it's tied to something. Yeah, I'm not sure the price makes sense, yeah. but let's yeah, not yeah. go there. Yeah, let's not go there. So, but let, let's let's say I don't know the future. Uh, the, whatever happens, so let's say that at a certain point. Nvidia actually, you know, uh, reduces its price because you know the, the price drops a little bit because it's very kind of expensively priced right now, yeah. and and then you don't read it as much in the papers, and so you forget about that, and so your human instinct of oh I miss that, you know, next time I'm gonna try to you know jump on the next train. Unfortunately, all so human biases make all of us terrible investors. And and that's why, as an investor, you need to build framework systems, logics that kind of constrain you from those biases. For yeah. instance, yeah. one product that I think it's horrible in the industry, but actually probably helped a lot of people do something right, is uh, those insurance products with very long lockups right so these are horrible because the the fees are, the fees are crazy super yeah. crazy right yeah. and you know the fees are crazy they invest for a long term they usually they probably take less risk than you can as an investor when you think such a long-term uh, investment so when you look at net returns they're horrible you know these are you know people call them ilps or you know any any type of insurance linked to investments and there are several sorts yeah. but if i have to say one positive things about these products that the fact that they lock people up for you know 20 years yeah. 30 years 
they kind of force people to do the right thing. Now, do I believe that that's the right way to uh, help people? No, of course. In fact, that we build stash away the opposite way, where you can withdraw money tomorrow. You can invest today and withdraw tomorrow. Mm. But then we encourage you not to do it, and we encourage you to continue to invest like if it was locked, because that's the right way to do it. Yeah, so the contradictory thing is for these insurance products, which, by the way, in some in some countries, I think are even kind of by law, you need to do some some stuff about that. So the entire industry is actually helped by by the law. But anyway, um, the the contradictory thing is there's so much fees. We'll talk about that later, the fees yes. and all that stuff, the compounding of the interest and the fees. So it goes in both sides. Because of these fees, people, if they understood the long-term investing and they would just buy an S&P 500 or whatever index fund, will like, oh, I'll use Tashoe, they would do much better. But because of their psychology, even with all these fees, they're still doing better than if they're doing the thing alone because they're just screwing themselves hey, with their you, own psychology. Yeah, because you buy, sell, buy, crazy. sell, buy, sell. Yes, of <laughs> course. And if you, because you end up, and then if you follow your emotions, so your emotions will push you to buy... High What's and high sell, sell low, low. Yeah. and uh, because you know when when markets are higher and higher and higher, you read about it, your friends talk about it, you open your investment app of sorts, and you see that you are in the green and everything is going well. It's like being at a casino and being winning. Yeah. It's very difficult to stop. I'm going to win forever. And one, exactly, and, and I love the kick. Yeah, exactly. While on the other side, when the markets drop. It feels like it's never gonna stop dropping, and then and then you hear stories of oh my god, these things are just getting worse, and the newspapers make it even worse because obviously they need to sell the newspapers, and uh, and so you the human bias will make you, you know, sell at the end of March 2020, the yeah. bottom of the markets, yeah. and buy at the end of uh, 2021 at the top of the markets. Yeah. And that's a recipe for disaster. <laughs> I'm not saying... Especially so when you I, repeat it over and over again, no, which agree, we all do. <laughs> I agree. So ideally, ideally, you should do the opposite, which is, you know, buy in March 2020 and sell at the end of 2021. But that's very, very difficult, if not yeah. impossible. So your second best strategy is buy, all the buy time. in March, buy in April, buy in buy May, all the time buy in June, buy in July, close your eyes, don't look at the markets, diversify. And, you know, 20 years down the road, you're going to pat yourself in the shoulder and have a very nice retirement. Or kick yourself in the in the nuts because you haven't done that. Yeah, no, no, no. But <laughs> Which is what most people did. Yeah. So let's start just with a bit of your background before we go into all this conversation. We talk about obviously investing and a bunch of other really interesting things. What are the key few defining moments in your life that led you to being here today in this studio, sat in front of me as the co-founder and CEO oh, that's of Tashaway. That's a profound question. I mean, I need to think about it. Let's go, let's actually go chronologically. I would say I was a good student at university. I think that's actually was a key, key thing, which mm. I think some people underestimate. Uh, I joined McKinsey, which was a great platform to learn and a great brand that allowed me to then have more opportunities after that. Through serendipity, so this is maybe the to, to through serendipity and a former colleague of McKinsey, I joined Rocket Internet. I founded the Italian office of Rocket Internet. Uh, and that, that it's important because it was my step from 
professional world of consulting and private equity, which is where I spent the first half of my career, into the more entrepreneurial uh, kind of internet mm-hmm. roles of building new companies. Uh, and then fourth, when Rocket asked me to move to Singapore, because otherwise I wouldn't be here, uh, to kind of become the CEO of Zalora, because th- that's why I'm in Singapore uh, mm-hmm. uh, today. So these are maybe, you know, so being a good student, I think is paramount importance, because otherwise, I've, you know, all of the following events would have not happened. Especially the first one. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so being a good student, McKinsey, uh, uh, Rocket Internet, and then uh, Zalora for for kind of the Singapore component. And then you, so that's maybe the professional path. And then obviously what's missing here is meeting my two co-founders, Nino and Fred. That's obviously was key in then deciding to start Stashway. If I didn't meet them, uh, Stashway would not exist. So that's obviously the key then decision-making point. And from a personal perspective, I guess maybe th- three parts to it. Uh, one is I grew up in a in a in a family where uh, my father w- traveled a lot for work, um, and so s- while I grew up in Italy, and that's it, like I grew up in Italy. Somehow I grew up with an, a bit of an international mindset, even if I was always in Italy, and I think that that was driven by the fact that. My father was traveling and he spoke good English, you know, for, you know, for an Italian of his age, it was actually outstanding English. Uh, and I guess that somehow influenced the way I thought about where, what was the area I could play in. You know, it was not just Milano or Northern Italy or Italy or Europe, but it was more global. You know, my father used to come to Asia very often for work. Um, and that I think had an impact, I guess, somehow psychologically. And in, and then as a part of that, he actually uh, uh, enabled me to spend some time abroad. When I was like seven, 18, 19, I spent uh, a couple of months, uh, one month every summer for three summers in doing internships abroad. Okay. Uh, and that I think was instrumental. That's very, yeah, that's yeah. very smart, actually. The, 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 the younger you do it, the better. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was great. I mean, uh, the first one, uh, let me tell you about this. The first one, I was 18. And, you know, I grew up in a small village in northern Italy of 4,500 people. And I used to go to a, the local high school in a nearby village of, you know, 6,000 people or 7,000 people. And then, uh, you know, and then my father said, hey, you know, do you want to spend uh, uh, July in, uh, 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 this was the last year of high school before university. The, uh, the, at the end of it, do you want to spend July between high school and university in New York? Uh, there is this kind of person I work with that told me that Amazing. you know if you want to go there, you can you know do the, an internship there you know, for free, of course, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and uh, and so you know I went from this like four thousand five hundred people village, you know, waking up in the morning with uh, breakfast ready because my mom was preparing it and you know everything. To oh my god, I'm okay. by myself in New York. I'm going to work in the morning, and at 18 years old, and I think those experiences really changed the way I think about many things. Made me, res- I guess, uh, uh, responsible faster. I guess, yeah. uh, and so this is uh, this was important. Now, but I'm I'm going maybe too deep on this. So let me uh, kind of go, go back. You were asking defining moments. So definitely, kind of growing up in a family where there was some sort of international exposure, and this played a big role. Um, and then to the fact that then also professionally, I, I kind of, uh, 
uh, traveled a little bit, uh, you know, with McKinsey, and then uh, went to do my MBA in the US, etc. And then Rocket obviously, you know, brought me elsewhere. And then lastly, uh, you know, obviously I met my wife in the period I was back in Italy actually for a few years, and that's when I met my wife. Uh, and you know, and she was, uh, she's Italian, also kind of grew up in Italy, you know, with actually maybe less international exposure than I had growing up, but somehow very open to explore and mm-hmm. and so when the the opportunity to come to singapore came about we were just married no kids at the time and uh she was a lawyer in italy at the time and she actually had the courage to say hey you know let's just i'll drop my job as a lawyer let's try this uh which obviously takes a lot of guts and a lot of trust in me and also a lot of you know uh, trust in us as a as a family and uh, and so we moved here, and you know what used to you know was supposed to be a year, and now it's been eleven. That's what we hear a lot, actually. Exactly. <laughs> now it's been eleven years, and but obviously it wouldn't have happened without her and without her support. And then you know since then we had you know we we have three three kids that were all born in Singapore, and so obviously we've kind of put a lot of roots here. Yeah, I think the 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 fact of moving. Or just having some experiences early on is definitely like life changing. I'm also from a village, actually seven thousand people. Oh, so I found someone with top, even a gi- gigantic village. Yeah, and um, and also when I was twenty, I went to Shanghai, and then I went to Hong Kong, and you actually get lost there. And I mean, before going, you're a bit like kind of tripping, like oh man, I don't know what's gonna happen. It's kind of like scary but exciting at the same time. And then you're there and you're getting lost, but it's so amazing because at the same time, like especially as a man nothing can really happen to you so you're there and like you 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 just learn uh, to i'd say like more like to increase your tolerance to stress at the end of the day like how do how do different situations affect me ah i've been through that i've been through the experience of like not even having a uh, maybe one for, for me one one time in hong kong i didn't even have a place to sleep at night so i ended up being sleeping in a spa it was really weird experience but like super funny at the end of the day and i realized nothing can happen i mean nothing Things can happen, but like it's never as bad as you think. And in general, in general, in life, you have these early experiences. You're gonna realize later there is always a solution. And actually, things that look bad because your brain is wired to uh, get you scared of most things. Actually, and it's never as bad as you think. And there is always a, a, no, a way I, to make it. I work. agree. I think the early experiences in uh, managing uncertainty and managing different situations. I did. I do think that helped me become a better problem solver in a way, right? And also judging the extent, the risk you are facing when you look at a specific uh, specific problem. Uh, and, you know, as you know, a part of it is, as I mentioned, the experiences I, I, I briefly touched upon, there was more, in, you know, very young, uh, semi-professional. I mean, you know, I was going to work, quote unquote, but in reality, you know, I don't know how much work I was actually producing. And I was 18 years old. That's not the point. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, Exactly. So, but anyway, officially I was going to work. (laughs) Or that was what I was trying to do. On the CV, you can add an experience. No, no, but but honestly, I was doing my best. But now I don't know how much value I added, but I was trying to. uh, But, you know, that's one. But the other thing also that I did a lot after that, so during my university years and early years as a you know kind of before i you know i got more stable i got married etc is that i i used to travel a lot in my free time like you know i backpacked around southeast asia i backpacked south america multiple times 
uh, I you know I went everywhere in Europe just backpacking, and I'm not talking about big budgets. Eh? I remember, <laughs> I remember in 2000 and when was it? 2005. I was in Thailand by myself, backpacking in Thailand by myself, and uh, I went I went to Chiang Mai, which I think was different from what Chiang Mai is today. And I took a train from Bangkok to Chiang Mai, a night train, and I remember that I was worried that uh, somebody would steal my backpack, so I actually I tied the backpack to me on the train as I was sleeping on the train. Uh, and then in Chiang Mai, I remember I was spending less than one US dollar a night yeah. for the for for the hostel where to I was see- staying, which which is uh, so. so uh, but you know. Like you mentioned, I think I don't think everybody needs to do this, but but I think that I think the ability to just live in different conditions and kind of uh, go through different things and, uh, flexible. Yeah, it make makes you more flexible. Yes, absolutely. That's so important. I did the same. Also, traveling through Asia, spent one dollar is a. It's pretty good. Like I think ours were like three or four dollars. Like yeah. the worst room, the worst room I've ever been in the Philippines in El Nido was like many years ago, three dollars. But actually, you realize I'm a creator who can adapt very quickly, and that's the most important. Oh, I can go to super nice hotel. I can still stay in like kind of shit places, but at the end of the day, I'm I can survive and I can thrive and be happy in any of these con- con- conditions as long as they're not maybe too prolonged, and yeah. therefore. I can leave my McKinsey job or big corporate job and start a company. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Look, I'll give you a, a more recent example. So in late 2019, I went to San Francisco for work reasons by myself. And part of the trip, uh, I was sleeping in a hotel paid by a VC company that invited me there. Uh, and then, But then I extended the trip by two, three days to speak to other venture capitalists. You know, I was in San Francisco mm-hmm. and I went to Silicon Valley. And San Francisco, I'm sure you heard, is absolutely crazy in terms of prices. And so I was scouting. So when I started to, or Stashway started to pay for, for my accommodation, I ended up stay, so the, the I ended up staying in, and I wanted to stay central because it makes makes it easier in a, from a logistics perspective. The best I could find at anything below 250 US dollars a night, which is a gigantic amount, as much more than I spend when I when I when I travel for work, was a room without a bathroom. And so, you know, I was like, I, do I spend 200 dollars for a room without a bathroom or 350 for a room with a bathroom? And I was like, you know what? Do I need the bathroom? I, I mean, no, it's okay. Like... I mean, it's. I mean, I just. I, so what I did, I wake up very early in the morning. So I could. No, but you know, this is stupid. Like obviously, it's not that it's going to change the the the, the, the numbers of stash away if I spend one hundred fifty dollars more. But it's a question of how you think about money, how much value 100%. you give you give to to 100%. money, and what is what is acceptable was not acceptable, and that was just not acceptable. And this should never change. Actually, even if you make more money, you should say I'm going to pay more for better experience, but there is so many overpriced things that are often linked maybe with hotels to the brand of the hotel or these things that actually don't make sense. I mean, even if you look at the rents in Singapore now, like you don't really have a choice, but but it doesn't make sense. And if you think in terms of actual value, that's very important. Like the, the value, the value of something should never change. Even if your life style or your income or your wealth changes because the actual value of the thing is still the same. Yeah. On the other side, what you could, let's talk about rent in Singapore, what you could argue is, okay, there is two different ways of defining value. One is value for you, and one is what the market thinks something is valued at, right? And so, uh, and uh, if the market right now thinks that a certain type of apartment is worth 
just make up a number, you know, $7,000 a month. And uh, a year ago, thought that the same apartment was worth $4,000 a month. You might disagree. And I obviously, I guess most of us would like to disagree. And most landlords would not disagree. Yeah. Uh, but it is what it is. And uh, therefore, then your your choice is, okay, do, do you know, do, do I pay the extra money? So I think value is a difficult concept, right? So It is, but I would argue with uh, this thing called kind of geographical arbitrage. Obviously, you're tied to a place yeah. because yes. you're building a business. But especially, again, a big advantage of having moved a lot is I, the, you say the value is subjective, but actually it's less and less subjective the more I've been to different places, seen the different lifestyle, the different taxes I pay in different places, the different prices of the different things, the different quality of life I yeah. get. And therefore I can assign a value to things and say, I accept to pay for this or not. And if I have the luxury to, then I'll move, which is called geography arbitrage. I'll move because I want to have, I, I know I can have definitely a better life quality somewhere. Oh, no, I... no place is perfect. There is trade-offs everywhere, but again moving a lot especially early on like helps you like uh, assign values to things uh, no i definitely fashion. i definitely agree that actually having the flexibility of uh, uh the mental flexibility of saying hey i'm not tied to a place i can uh, i can move obviously it becomes more difficult as you take more responsibilities you have you know Absolutely. family you have kids yeah. you know in my case you're building a company and honestly i think singapore is a great place so uh so it's great to be here but the 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 you're right that I think the flexibility of, you know, for instance, in my case, the flexibility of building a company in Singapore versus being back at, you know, what I I guess I would consider home, Italy, uh, I think enabled me to have more opportunities. Yeah. So you've been to McKinsey, then you've been to, I think, private equity, yes. then you went to Rocket Internet. So I want to say, basically, consulting. Then you were saying, in one of our previous conversations, you were saying, you realized people were leaving consulting for private equity. So there was kind of a trend there, something there, which basically you ended up following. And then there was a new trend, which was basically e-commerce and internet and, and tech early 20, uh, 2010s, which you ended up also surfing the wave with uh, Zalora and Rocket Internet. And then there was a new trend, which was fintech with the neobanks and Revolut, Monzo, and even what you're doing now, Stashaware is definitely tied to fintech. And these trends, they really help people who maybe are not building businesses yet to kind of maximize their career opportunities. Because if you follow the right trend, you're going to be in the right place. You need a bit of luck too, but like kind of the right place at the right time for the next trend too. What's the next big trend that you think people who want to maximize their career opportunities should be you know, next wave, they should be catching and surfing now. So let me maybe tell you two things. So let me answer your, your, your question in a second. But before I do that, I actually think about my career choices slightly differently. So you're right that what I mentioned to you is that the way, uh, the reason why at a certain point I started looking into private equity uh, is because I saw a bunch of colleagues I uh, at McKinsey that I really liked going to private equity. And so I asked myself, what is it? Maybe I should know what it is. Mm -hmm. And therefore I spent actually, you know, my MBA time trying to understand private equity better. But that's not the reason then I, I moved. I moved out of McKinsey mostly because I wanted a more entrepreneurial platform. McKinsey is a very large institution. I, I work in two big offices, Milano, New York. And so those were a bit too kind of a, not enough entrepreneur. There was not enough space, I thought. And then I joined, in fact, I joined a small private equity shop. I didn't join KKR. 
I, I actually decided to go to a small private shop because I, I wanted to have more entrepreneurial opportunities. And so when, when Rocket Internet came knocking at my door, I was like, oh yeah, that's maybe my chance to be ahead of the curve. You know, if you put this in context, this was in 2011. This was in Italy in 2011. Amazon opened an office in Italy three or four years later. Mm. So this was pre-Amazon in Italy. Yeah. That's what we're talking about. So it was very early days from an internet perspective from where I was at the time, yeah. Italy. And so there was a little bit of this, let me be ahead of the game. And plus that is also the idea that this was actually another step into doing something even more entrepreneurial. So having said that, let me answer your question. What are the new trends? It's a difficult question to uh, to answer. I've been historically skeptical of some of the hype uh, in uh, in uh, some of the technologies that have been uh, very much talked about in the last few years. Uh, while I do, you know, you know, you know, blockchain, I think you know there is a lot of uh, a lot of things that will uh, that will be impacted, and uh, you know, there's, I see I see a lot of applications on on custody and many other areas. Uh, but I thought that there was a bit of overhype uh, in the yeah. past. I don't know now where we stand, but I thought it was a bit of overhype. Now no one gives a shit anymore. Yeah. It's these cycles yeah. where yeah. everybody goes crazy about the thing and then it's gone. It's gone. Yeah. If you talk about that you are in the industry, like people say they're in finance now. They don't say they're in, in blockchain. Or oh, okay. Didn't, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, crypto is different. Crypto is different. So also crypto, I was not an early adopter and honestly to my mistake I, I wish I was uh, but you know I obviously I, I I came to the train quite late on the crypto side and uh, um, and I do you know uh, I do see potentially you know some areas of continued development mm -hmm. but I was also always more among the skeptics rather than among the ones super bullish I have to say that on the artificial intelligence train while i do think there is some overhype right now i actually think that uh the the, the potential to change many 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 things is incredibly concrete so to answer your question i do think that uh artificial intelligence is a train that you know, people should consider uh looking into if they're looking at you know at uh kind of uh, doing different things so it's is what does that mean concretely? It's joining a comp because it's very technical. So it's joining a company. Let's say you do marketing, for example. It's joining a company that is integrating some AI or marketing some AI in their products. I I think it's first of all is working on yourself, is making sure that you are that you are upskilling yourself. So I I was speaking at um, our own town hall uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, and we, we kind of everybody at uh, stash away so this is from you know from marketing to engineering to compliance to customer support everyone and what i told everyone is um you should spend your i told if you are less than 55 which is a hundred percent of people employed at stash away mm. um you might want to spend a lot of your free time your evenings your weekends trying to make sure that you up that you learn how to use ai to become a better better at what you do yeah uh, that's your first step. And so I think that, that you need to work on yourself. You need to, I think, make sure you're in a company that embraces change uh, and, and enables you to learn, enables you to grow, enables you to try new things and maybe do some mistakes here and there. 
uh, I don't think you need to, I don't think everybody needs to work in NVIDIA to, to be in AI, right? So it's not that you need to work at, uh, you know, at the people building the chips to actually benefit. I think the, 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 the power of what's happening with artificial intelligence is the breadth of its potential impact. And therefore, there's going to be opportunities in many different areas. Uh, and so you just need to make sure that you are, if you want to harness this opportunity, you need to, first of all, work on yourself, on your skills, and on your openness to uh, to these new technologies. And secondly, being in a place that enables you to experiment, to learn, uh, to, to do stuff. So it's actually, how can I get much better at my job using AI and almost every job now can be complemented with AI. You just take ChatGPT 3, 3.5, 4, and you realize, oh man, I didn't realize, but I'm able to be much more efficient in everything I'm doing. So that's the first step, basically. It's it's that. And then the problem with, uh, that's an issue actually, we're saying you need to work in a place that embraces change. If you look at most of the big corporations, like they're for the moment, what they're doing they're saying, no, 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 you can't use AI because all this data is going to go everywhere and it's too, it's too dangerous and like they're not embracing. It's the same as the cloud, 2014, 15. Oh, no, no, uh, my server is in the cloud. Are you crazy? All my customer data will be, everything is going to be in the cloud anyway and everything is going to end up with AI anyway. Yeah, so, so I, think, I think prohibiting the people to use, uh, to use new technology is absolutely crazy. And so if, if you are, I think if you are working in a company that prohibits you to do that, I mean, de, de facto, they are reducing your development, right? And they're potentially making you uh, unemployable in the future, which yeah. is something that you need to think about. I mean, that's a... So, 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 so don't take the excuse that your company is prohibiting the usage of AI to not spend your evenings or your weekends you can, on you can... learning this stuff because I know not everyone has the luxury to say, ah, oh, employer, you don't want to, you're prohibiting me to use AI, therefore I'm going to change. Obviously, a lot of people don't have this luxury to say, I'm just going to change my job because, but it's not an excuse to just say, oh, this is not going to happen because it's actually happening already no, at a crazy absolutely. pace. I mean, no, absolutely. Use your personal computer uh, and uh, in the in the weekend, uh, you know, do some experiments, which don't need to be, uh, just learn right you know just uh, put yourself out there and um uh, and i think that you know we're still in the very early phases of this and ai obviously is not just chat gpt is not just uh you know obviously it became very very it went on the first pages of newspapers recently because of chat gpt and uh, generative ai but in reality there is you know much more happening and, and much more that has been happening for a long time and i was i was speaking to our chief investment officer stephanie couple of weeks ago and uh she wrote her um she's a computer scientist and she wrote her master thesis in i think 2001 something like that at stanford in 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 artificial intelligence so 2001 so, yeah something like that 2001 2002 yeah. so so you know this is not something that yeah. so there is it's been just a development of in many 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 things yeah. over a long time and we actually all of us deal with ai technology in many many different ways already now it's becoming available to all of us. I think that's what actually Gen AI uh, makes it possible. And and therefore, the potential impact is now more obvious to each of us. So to your question, I don't... So to your initial question, which is, you know, what is the trend that people should jump on right now? But I don't think that necessarily to maximize your career potential, which to me means making sure you continue to have fun at what you do, yeah. uh, you need to jump on the next technological train 
I, I don't think it's that simple. I think just make sure you're an organization that enables you to have fun, enables you to have responsibilities, enable you to learn, and that's what matters, and that will, will pay off also financially if that's what you're targeting uh, at the end of the day. In terms of trend, I do think that, you know, out of the many, many trends we've been kind of uh, talking about over the last uh, few years, I do think that artificial intelligence is maybe the one that is the broadest potential impact and therefore is the one that sh everybody should pay attention to. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very practical, actually. Even yesterday, I, I, I had to write a business plan for one of my businesses, actually, and I was just postponing for weeks. Like, I don't have time to write this business plan. And, like, and then I was like, oh, I could go on uh, Upwork or Fiverr, this uh, freelance platform, and just hire someone to write it for me. So they're going to ask me all the right questions. I'm going to answer. And they help me frame the whole thing. And then I just go, business plan, AI. And there's these AI softwares where you just answer. They're doing what the dude on the, or the gal on the, on the Upwork would do. Yeah. But now, like, it's just... I answer this question. The thing is writing the whole business plan for me with like doing analysis of trends. And I'm like, and I paid 19 bucks. And my my business plan that I thought would take me like a week or two, obviously I'm going to have to like go through yes. it. And like, but the, the chunk, the bay is there. It took me 45 minutes. I paid 19 bucks and it's there. And it's just, up. you can apply this to everything. Food recipes, uh, sports stuff, probably learning, everything. Like it's crazy. And, and probably it was already there before, but now we have this much bigger um, awareness that this is a thing. And therefore we're going to start to think for everything we need to do, we're going to think about, yeah, is something using AI already available? And it is. And therefore you're, you're, you're 10 times, a hundred times faster and better. So it's, the, 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 people say now uh, AI is not going to replace you, but someone who knows how to use AI will. And at some point, probably AI yeah. is going to replace you, but that we're not there yet. But like you need to, as you said before, like you need to understand that this is the, 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 your, your Google search where ah, people who use Google and like use YouTube to understand stuff, put stuff together, had a probably big advantage 10 years ago. Now it's like, do you know how to use AI to complement and become much better at what you're doing? No, absolutely. And then obviously uh, you cannot trust the answers blindly and you may need to make it yours. Otherwise it becomes, you know, that now, otherwise you become useless for real, right? And so, you know, it's, uh, and what you need to do is you need to add value and you need to, and you add value. I mean, in the example you gave, you add value by asking the right questions and directing the software, the AI to give you certain type of answers and then editing, refining, fixing, yeah. changing, you know, it's what I got, you know, the sandwich strategy, you yeah. kind of, uh, <laughs> so, you, the iteration, you, the sandwich strategy is a good one. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Let's talk about investing. The key topic today. Let's do it. Why is it so important for people? So let's start with the basics, right? Like not how do we invest and all that. Why is it so important for people to not only save because a lot of people don't even save money. They just leave paycheck from paycheck. So step number one, I should try to save 10, 20% of my salary every month. Right. Let's make the assumption people understand that. Which, by the way, I think it's 50 or 60% of American people like don't even have, a, have like 500 bucks on their bank account in case there's a problem happening. So it's a crazy statistic. But anyway, let's make people, uh, assumption people understand. That. Why should people not only save, but also invest their hard earn cash 
It's very simple because if you save, let's see if I, we can do some numbers. If you say save $1,000 a month, let's say, so that's $12,000 a year. You do it for 30 years and you put it under the pillow or in the bank account that gives you the fact of 0%. <clears throat> and you have your 30 years, you have $360,000, mm. which, you know, it's not bad. Mm. If you do the same, but instead of putting it under the pillow or in a bank account, you put it in a diversified balanced portfolio, which on average over the last decades have given some, something around, uh, you know, 6%, let's call it. So 6 to 7%, but let's call it 6. Mm. After 30 years, you have a million dollars. So the difference between $360,000 and a million dollars in terms of, you know, uh, you know, let's call it retirement, it's quite significant. Obviously, you know, you can scale it up. Instead of 1,000, you can make it 2,000. Is the, the difference between 720 and $2 million. Mm. And, uh, and that makes a big difference. Now, we can introduce concepts like inflation. I want you to know, talk about all that. No, exactly. But, that. but that makes the discussion more difficult. I think the simplest way to think about it, forget inflation, irrespective of how much a dollar is worth 30 years from now, it's the difference between having 360 to one more or not to you know 360 or, or 1 million that's yeah. the difference right <laughs> yes. then then whether whether a sandwich costs five dollars or ten dollars or twenty dollars it doesn't matter you can buy more sandwiches if you have a million dollars than if you have three hundred sixty thousand dollars yes now the more you know so that's the that's why i want to kind of keep it super simple and i'm using six percent you can do the math with five or seven or four yeah it's gonna change the numbers slightly but the concept remain the same over a long period of time, the difference between money that is not working for you and money that is working for you is gigantic. Yeah. It's called compounding. And it's a, the problem is that you don't see it next month. You don't see it the following month. You don't see it in five months from now. You don't see it even in two years from now or three years from now. That difference compounds over time. And we are wired in a way that we seek instant gratification and therefore we don't appreciate this compounding effect and therefore we don't have the intrinsic motivation to actually have this long-term goal and keep keep at it, keep at it, yeah. be constant, be disciplined, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's the same as if you take two 20-year-old 20 20 years people and one of the, you know, they do exactly the same life and they have these, you know, two, two twins, let's say. They have the exact same life, the exact same body shape, et cetera. The difference is that one of the two doesn't do any exercise at all, and the other one does 10 minutes of exercise every day. 10 minutes every day, nothing. Nothing, but after every day. After 20 years, yeah. they would be completely yeah, different absolutely. people. Completely different people, right? It's only 10 minutes every day, but if you do it every day, discipline for 20 years is gonna change you completely. The same happens with money. It compounds. So you want to talk about inflation? We can. The brain, just regarding compounding, the brain is not, the human brain doesn't understand exponential growth. So therefore, yeah. that, so the only the only way you can do that is either take an Excel spreadsheet and calculate the compounded interest, which is a bit weird, but there's also a lot of compounded interest calculators online or on most of these wealth management platform. Yeah. And I suspect on StashAway yes. too, like you basically have if you invest that much at that percentage, look at the growth of your portfolio over time yes. and you can project yourself. And then there's always this kind of cue or benchmark that you have and you look at, I know I'm investing every month. Yeah. Because I want to get there one day. 
versus yes. and then you, and then you need to know that it's not going to be a linear journey right so it's not that the markets go up by doesn't so when i say six percent in 30 years on average it doesn't mean six percent every year so six percent a year in 30 years doesn't mean six percent every year and definitely does not mean 0.5 percent per month you're gonna have positive months negative months positive years negative years and the, and if you get scared and you try to kind of uh, overthink it, you will potentially actually not make it happen. Yeah. Let's try to go a bit deeper into that. So now we understood the very, very basics. I still want to go a bit deeper into what we call inflation mm -hmm. and also how it's tied to basically the 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 agenda of the central banks. So it's actually going not only with inflation, but saying, I mean, the whole concept of wage deflation, money printing, the fact that asset prices go up, therefore retirement costs, retirement costs more and more because asset prices go up, but wage don't go higher or don't follow. Like this concept basically. So not too long, but at least we understand why is everything becoming more expensive? And therefore, why is real estate also becoming more expensive? So if I don't have it, it's becoming expensive. But if I own it, stocks or real estate, I'm beneficiary. But why? How is the system built so that this stuff is actually... So people understand, I'm not just doing a, ga a gamble on the future that these companies are going to do well, but actually the entire system is built for these asset prices to go up. I mean, the... the... The way this, the way I simply think about it. I mean, first of all, let's start from the concept. What is inflation? Inflation means that uh, positive inflation means that price of goods and services grow over time. Most central banks in the world target an inflation rate at around two percent per annum. So, a good assumption to make is that in the next thirty years, you're gonna average more or less. 2% per annum inflation, right? So if you're thinking about a long-term, I mean, this year it's, it's going to be higher, but over the long-term, more or less inflation will probably be 2% because that's what the central banks want and the central banks actually have the tools to make it happen. Mm. What does it mean is that the sandwich that today costs, actually, let's do, let's do easier number. Uh, what, what can cost $100? A chair that today costs $100, let's say, Next year, on average, it costs one hundred and two dollars. The following year was cost one hundred and four point four dollars, and that compounds similarly to. So it's not plus two dollars every year. It's two dollars the first year. The second year is two point four dollars, and that's going to be then two point eight dollars, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's going to grow over time, uh, and that will, you know, uh, in, you know, make your, uh, your 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 cost of life higher. Now, as you work, most probably your salary will also grow in line with inflation, or if you're making a good career, probably higher than inflation. Yeah. I mean, as you get more senior, actually your salary will probably grow faster than inflation. And so you actually become wealthier versus the cost of your life. The issue is that when you stop working and you retire, inflation will continue growing while you know your assets that you put together to pay for your retirement are, are now, you know, are now where they are. 
uh, and you know, unless you continue working, you know, you're not going to have an ad, you know, inflow of other cash that will continue to grow with inflation. And that's why it's important that you've planned for it way ahead of that, because otherwise it's too late and you're forced to do potentially things you don't want to, because maybe you want to stop working or maybe you can't work anymore because, you know, you're, you know, you are at a certain age and uh, you can't physically do that anymore. And so that's why it's important that you start planning very much in advance. Now, so that's a, the core yeah. basic concept. Now you were asking. So just before that, basically it means that back to our first question, which was why should you invest and not just keep your money in cash? It's because of this 2% inflation every year, which might be more in the future. We'll see about that. Your purchasing power is just becoming less and less. And again, because if you understand this concept of compounding, $2 this year, next year, 2.4, in 30 years, it's going to be a lot. Yes. And if, if your money is not working to at least beat this 2% every year, you're getting really screwed. Absolutely. That's the basics. Absolutely. Then, I, would, I would argue that even with 0% inflation, you should still invest because having a million dollars absolutely more than three is better than having 360, irrespective of how much a sandwich costs. Absolutely. But you're right, that inflation makes it even more obvious. Yeah. So now you wanted to add, because now we're talking about, for me, it's basically adding a, a, a new concept. I mean, it's not new, but like to this, to this conversation, now that we understood the basics is since the dawn of times, governments have been, it's getting a bit more complex, but it's very important to understand. I think governments have been funding wars and their expenses and economic crises with money printing from the central banks and how this is affecting, and we're seeing it now because of what happened in 2020 during COVID, how this is affecting the cost of different things, which not only the food and the rent and all that stuff, that's, that's bad, but that's not the worst. The actual worst is why do people work? Okay, they want to have fun and they need to be busy and they need to be stimulated, but people work because one day the goal is to retire. What is the definition of retirement is either working on something that I love too, and I don't need to necessarily make money, or I can just stop working. When central banks, since pretty much forever, and governments, when there is a problem in the economy because we have a, we have a debt-based system, basically, so the system is basically based on a growing debt, when every time there is a problem, the answer to this problem is printing more money, this affects the prices of assets because the assets are fixed and they're denominated in a, in a value, the dollar, the euro, that is not fixed, that is just being printed, that is less and less valuable. Therefore, the price of these fixed assets, real estate, stocks, crypto, whatever, is going up on average in time just because there is always more and more money printed. And so therefore, if I'm working all my life to retire, I'm working basically to earn in cash to buy these assets that in the future should cover my life expense at a, let's say, a interest rate of 5 or 4% or whatever. If, let's make the assumption I'm not, I don't have an amazing career where I just like get these better jobs and grow my income a lot. Let's say my income like increases like soaring inflation 2%. But then the, money, the, the central bank is printing and printing and printing money and therefore these asset prices that I need to acquire to one day be able to retire are becoming more and more expensive because it's what's happening. Why is real estate going up like crazy? 
since forever or stocks. That's, that's basically what we're trying to get at, like in this conversation is it's, the, it's, it's partly because yes, the companies I'm investing in are doing great. It's, that's one thing, but the actual thing is there is so much money printing that if you look in terms of real return and nominal return, I think it was, um, so it's, it's Raul Paul that was, he was, uh, in 2000, since 2010, 2009, since the QE, quantitative easing after the great financial crisis, he was just saying, let's divide the S&P 500, so stock market, real estate by the, 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 the central bank balance sheet to see whether the growth in this asset is due to good performance or is due to money printing. And basically he was saying, look, uh, so nominal, basically I'm, we went up a lot. But in real rates, we're kind of flat, meaning that almost none of this growth would be from actual growth, but much more from money printing. Look, I'm not an economist. And so, you know, the, the economists listening will hopefully, uh, you know, accept my apologies in advance for my simplifications. Um, also, I don't want to go, you know, I'm not going to go too technical because I'm not the right person for that. But um, obviously, Cycles of money printing have an, an impact on all asset classes, and we saw it in the last few years, right? So it's uh, uh, you know the 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 twenty twenty one let's call it asset bubble or you know kind of market tops across multiple asset classes was driven by the fact there was a lot of uh, money in circulation, and uh, as soon as the banks started to dry up a little bit and uh, and uh, uh, in order, in order to fight inflation, obviously that has an effect on all uh, uh, most asset classes. Um, <clears throat> in reality, you know, when you look at the stock market today, more or less, uh, I'm looking. Let's let's look at S and P 500. Uh, it's now at you know around somewhere between you know 17 and 19 times price earnings. That's the kind of core measure of value right now. So de facto, you're pay, you're you're assuming you're gonna get a bit more than five percent uh, mm. earnings yield. It's not dividend, but you know, let's call it earnings yield uh, on your on your equity, assuming no growth, which is more or less the historical standards, and it's a kind of a uh, it's not a crazy number, right? So. Uh, now, obviously, this is a broad number. It doesn't look at all the companies out there. It's not cheap. It's not expensive. It's more or less the average was 18 times, and now I think it's a bit above that. It's maybe 19 right now, uh, driven mostly by the famous uh, six or seven companies. Yeah. Uh, and so, I, actually, I, regarding that, I saw the this morning a chart or yesterday. It was saying this year, I think the S. Um, I think this year. The market is up, so US market is up 11%. If you take out these top seven companies, you're basically flat at zero. Yes, yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> so, but, no, exactly. So it's incredibly narrow right now. But, but yeah. for, forget for a second, you know, this is something that happened in the last uh, six months. Uh, but in general, you know, I don't think that the message is that increased of prices of assets over time is driven by some by the, by some sort of financial manipulation or excessive money printing. Money printing has an effect on markets and on asset prices for sure. 
depending on uh, expected returns in different asset classes, you're going to see money moving from one place to another. Uh, and so, for instance, this year, we're starting to see more and more money moving to short-term uh, government bonds because, you know, two years ago, they were giving zero. Now, US giving 5%, Singapore's giving 35 et cetera. Uh, and uh, probably starting to see now more, kind of a slightly longer-term bonds uh, attracting capital as well. But this is simply natural movements of investment trying to get the best returns. And I think it's fair and it's and it's a good, it's kind of good behavior of the market. Uh, are there bubbles out there? For sure. I mean, uh, there are bubbles and, you know, I do think that there, are, there is some overhype on uh, AI, for instance. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I said earlier, I, I do think AI will have a gigantic impact. I do think it's some of the AI valuations out there don't make sense to me at least uh, but uh, and we'll you know we will continue to see bubbles and uh, this is something that will continue to happen you're going to have periods of over excitement versus a certain topic and and then you're going to have the opposite you know the under excitement about other topics which is why i always go back to the same uh to the same mantra which is it's very difficult to get to get it always right, to always know which are the six companies that are driven the returns. The, you know, yeah. the, the, you mentioned uh, this year, seven companies made all of the returns of the S&P 500. Yeah. And uh, if you only invested in those seven, you would have made, I don't know the number, but, you know, 40, 50%, something yeah. like that. If you invested in all the, in the S&P, you made you know, around eight or 10 or something like that. Uh, because you probably don't know who, which ones are going to be the, the next seven in the next six months, you're better off always diversifying and investing in the S&P if you're just looking at the U.S. markets. My perspective, you should be looking at global markets and you should not be looking just at equities, but also bonds, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, diversification is honestly the answer to all of these questions. So now we understood why we should invest. Basically, do you want a million or do you want 360K in 30 years to make it simple? You need to invest your cash because you want more money in the future. Let's talk about the principle of investing. So the principles, there's a few principles that are very important because people will ask, okay, and I understood why. Oh, I'm just saving and I'm actually thinking about my girlfriend. She has a, she's just saving money. Like she's like, oh, I have six figures on my bank account. I'm like, <laughs> so now. I have a solution how- for her. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about it later. We're getting there. So, <laughs> um, so, She's going to ask, how do I do that? What do I need to understand? You know? And so just before we start the conversation, like a few principles, I'll just recommend four books that I read that I think are amazing to start my journey. The first one is called Unshakable by uh, Tony Robbins. It's basically a summary of a bigger book that I also read that is also amazing called Money Master the Game. The second, uh, the third book is uh, The Little Common Sense of Investing by John Bogle, the founder of Vanguard. And the fourth book is uh, called... Um, a Random Walk Down Wall Street by Bertrand Malkiel. And all these books basically say the same thing. So probably you can read two of them. But it's just like you want to read maybe two or three different authors to realize, ah, it's actually always the same. Because yeah. everybody's saying the same and everybody, is doing, everybody who's been making a lot of money has been applying the same very kind of boring principles which we'll talk about right now. So Michele, you're building um, 
very successful business around those principles, basically, and around making it easy for people to invest. So can you spill the beans and tell us what are the few key principles that new investors uh, need to understand if they want to apply their financial goals, uh, to reach their financial goals? Yeah, so look, the way I think, so the way I thought about it for myself and I couldn't find a solution to help me, and that's why I started building StashAway, is quite simple. What you need to do is, as you mentioned, you need to invest, first of all. You shouldn't just be out, you know, be out. You, you need to diversify, so you shouldn't bet in a single company or single or even a single segment or a single sector or a single country. So you need to diversify it across asset classes, depending on your risk level, but you don't want to have probably equities and bonds and gold and real estate. And I'll talk about risk in a second. You want to diversify across geographies. All of us have what is called a home bias. Yeah. So if you talk to British yeah. people, they'll have excessive investment in the UK. Americans have excessive investment in America. Singaporeans have excessive investment in Singapore. It's normal and it's wrong. So, you, you know, uh, kind of geogra diversify geographically is, is important as well. Uh, diversify across, you know, sectors and, uh, and themes, let's call it just more broadly. So diversification is very important. You also need to diversify, diversify across times. You don't want to time the market. Mm. And that's why the... The best way to do it is what people call a dollar cost averaging, which is in, pra in practice means that you decide that every 22nd of the month or third of the month or 14th of the month, whatever your favorite number is, you invest whatever your monthly saving is, $100, $1,000, $10,000, a million dollars every month in that diversified portfolio. And you do it for a very long period of time. So you don't, so you are gonna, when the markets are, higher, you're going to, uh, you know, end up buying a few less yeah. uh, assets. When the markets are lower, you actually buy more. You're there on discount, so it's better. But you don't try to predict what's going to happen because anyway, you're going to get it one time right and three times wrong. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's a useless, expensive, complex, and uh, not, not good use of your time. Maybe something to add to that is actually you said it would be the 16th, the 22nd, the 3rd. When I... Most people, I think, should try to automate that first. Okay. Like you need to, so first, you need to pay yourself first. What does that mean? It means that as soon as you receive your salary, let's say it's on the 25th, the first thing you do is this 10 or 20% that you want to invest, you invest them right away, and then you leave the rest of your month with the remaining money. If you do it later on, you, you're not going to invest. I agree. And you should automate that. And then you can even have like your employer match some chunk of that, depending on like what scheme you're under. Because if you automate it, it's going to be done automatically, obviously. And if you do it right after receiving salary, then you're going to, you're going to do it. Yeah. And, and you know how much you can spend yeah. because that's what's left in your bank account yeah. on your spending. And actually the idea of having a spending account and kind of separated with, uh, you know, your kind of investments, which includes maybe your emergency funds, by the way which should not be your spending account. Your spending account, your emergency fund should not be the same account because then it becomes tricky. So anyway, going back to what I was saying earlier, diversify dollar cost average, which de facto is diversify time yeah. as well. And 
maybe the third principle, so the third principle, or maybe the first one is make sure you're investing at the right risk level. Mm. And why it's so important is because if you're taking too little risk, let's say, you're not maximizing the value of your money over time. And uh, if you're taking too much risk, you will you will end up stopping your plan. There is going to be one day where you're not going to sleep at night because your you know your portfolio is down more than you can support because you took too much risk, and you're going to sell everything at the worst possible moment. Yeah. And so that's why it's so important that you take the right risk level. Now, how do you? What is the right risk level? It depends from two factors. One is timeline. Yeah. The more time you have, the more risk you can take. So for your retirement plan in 30 years, you can take more risk. For your, I want to buy a house in two years' time, you need to take much, much, much less risk because you only have two years to go. So more time, more risk, less time, less risk first. And second, personal preferences. There is people that can sleep very well at night even when their portfolio are down a lot. You know, you know uh, let's use crypto numbers for a second. You know, your portfolio, your uh, <laughs> You might be down, you know, 85% and people, some people can still sleep at night. And people that when they start seeing red in their in their investment portfolio, they can't sleep at night. And, uh, and so it's important to recognize and acknowledge the situation and take into consideration. So diversify, diversify time. So dollar cost average. Make sure you're taking the right risk level because that's what was going to prepare you to go through the ups and downs. Yeah. And embrace those ups and downs. You know, if you are in your 30s and you think you're going to retire 30 years from now, but that's true also if it's 20 years or 15, eh? but let's say, let's say, let's use 30 just as an example. In the next 30 years, most likely you're going to go through five or six bear markets and 20 plus corrections. That's a fact. Bear market is more than 20% correction and... Yeah, bear market is when the markets go down by more than 20% and correction is when the market goes down between 10 and 20%. Okay. So that's the usual, the, the usual yeah. definition. So, you know, this is going to happen. In the next 30 years, they're going to have... There's going to be more, probably five to six bear markets and probably 20 plus corrections. That's a fact of life. You cannot go around it. Don't even try to time it. You might get it once right and 24 times wrong or twice right and 23 times wrong. Yeah. And so what you need to do is you need to prepare to go through these corrections. And you look at them with the right mindset. And the right mindset, exactly. The right mindset is actually, if you have your standing instruction where or your e-gyro set up, where you invest on a monthly basis and the markets are down, that month you're actually buying more yeah. than in the previous month where the price were higher. So when you look at it from the eyes of the future, you're actually making your best investments yeah. when the markets are down, not your worst investments. Yeah. Then the problem is that we are wired to look at it with the eyes of the past, not the eyes of the future. There is a beautiful quote on this from Warren Buffett that says, imagine you are driving a car and you have one third of your, uh, you know, it's a, your fuel is one third uh, full, two third empty. And you're driving past a gas station and the gas station says, Price minus 50%. I would say, wow, this is great. You drive in and you, you know, you fool your tank, right? You put the two-third on because it's cheap. You're happy. If you're early in your investment career, 
and therefore your investment tank is one third full and two third empty because your earning potential is much higher than what you earn so far. You're going to invest more in the future than you invested in the past, and you have more time you know ahead of you. And the markets are down. Let's use the same number, fifty percent. You should you know use the same logic. You should be happy because you are fueling the tank at a lower price for future benefits. Uh, it's honestly, obviously very difficult as a human being to grasp this. It's yeah. just against all of our biases, but it's the right way to think about it. So in the um, Unshakable, I think the book, one of the things that struck, like it's, and I read it many years ago, one of the, the chapter is called Tax Fees and Fear. So the, the thing is, what, the, what are the things you control in investing? You don't control the markets, what they're doing. But there's three things you control. Taxes, which is going to be very easy for us because, I mean, we're in Singapore, so it's much better for people. There's no capital gain taxes, there's no tax on dividend, etc. Fear, you just talk about it, like pro risk profile to make sure that you can stomach these bear markets or these up and down. And the last one is fees. Do you want to talk more about how important the fees are and how the entire financial industry is built to extract as many fees as possible and to sell you products that are not in your yeah. favor. And that's also based on your personal story. So maybe you want to see, you want to, when you started to invest, you said like people were. Yes. Let me start from, uh, from why it's important. Let me, let me use the numbers again. So let's say that you invest $2,000 a month for 30 years. And uh, actually two different people, you know, both investing $2,000 a month for 30 years. Both of them investing in portfolios that return 6% per annum before fees. Same risk, same sophistication, mm. same intelligence, same returns, 6% per annum gross of fees. One of them pays fees that are typical of mutual funds or unit trust in Singapore. So the assumption here is that they will pay 2.5% entry fees every two years. We, I'm generous here because on average people churn every year. So mm -hmm. I'm saying every two years. Mm -hmm. And then around 1.5% per annum. Again, I'm generous here because on equity products is actually 1.8, 1.9. So one, one of them pays 2.5% every two years, churning product, and 1.5% per annum on everything. That's more or less what you end up paying all in if you're investing through kind of a, a unit trust structure, then we can talk about the different products. But that's yeah. kind, of your, kind of your, more or less your baseline if you invest with a bank. The other one, pays the, I mean, I use the statutory number because I have the statutory numbers in mind. Uh, but anyway, our fees, which starts from 0.8%, they go down to 0.2% as your portfolio grows larger. So on, on average, during this journey, you probably end up paying uh, 0.3, 0.4. I don't have the exact number, but you know, the, the, the numbers are doing right. At the end of the 30 years, remember, eh, same, same return, 6%, 6%. At the end of the 30 years, the first guy, the one paying the bank's fees, will have $1.2 million. The second guy will have $1.8 million. The only difference has been fees. Yeah. Now, the difference between 
1.8 and 1.2 million dollars, which is 50% more, huh? 50% yeah. more, $600,000 is the difference between a retirement where you watch a lot of TV and a retirement where you go to Paris once a year, or you go to Tokyo once a yeah. year, or you go to Seoul or to once a year. Or let, yeah, or, or let's be even more extreme, is the difference between one where you're basically worried if you're going to die, if you're going to run out of funds before you die, yeah. which is a catastrophe that's happening to a lot of people, or one where you just basically have a, oh, and the one where you worry, you're probably not retiring. You have to work longer because you never, you don't know. Whereas the other one, you have a great uh, retirement. So it's changing everything. Absolutely. Or one where you could say, actually, I don't want to retire at 65. I can retire at 60 or at 58. Whereas the other, you need to work longer. So it's a massive difference of just making a, dif a different decision on who I invest with and what, fees, the, the difference of the fees. Why? Because these fees compound over time, the same as the interest, Correct. except they work against you. Exactly. So it's not that you paid $600,000 more in fees. Eh? It's that the fees you paid early on, they're not in your investment account any longer. And so they don't compound for yeah. you any longer. Yeah. And therefore, you know, reduce your total amount at the end. Now, this is not the worst of the problems though. So this is why it's so important. The worst of the problem to me is that the typical fee structure in most of the investment industry creates a series of misalignment of incentives. Completely. So if, if the person <laughs> that is talking to you about investments makes money at the end of the month personally, makes the bonus, makes the career, etc. If he or she sells you products that make more money to the bank or the institution the person is working for than for you. Obviously, and for good reasons. I mean, this is not being a bad person. This is just, you know, this is a problem of incentives. For good reason, this person will, will when decided between showing you product A that gives to the bank, you know, 1% and product B that gives to the bank 1.2%, which one do you think they're going to show you? or promote you a bit more, obviously product B. Are you 100% sure that they're gonna show you product B because they think, in all honesty, that product B is better for you than product A? Maybe sometimes you have the, the, that alignment of, of, uh, of logics, but in most cases, at least the question mark remains there. So and this misalignment of incentives over time reduces the efficiency of, of your investments, not just on the cost side, but also on so the assumption before was having the same 6% gross returns. Here I'm telling you, actually, in reality, probably you're also going to leave money on the table on the sophistication side because the system is just built in a way that doesn't incentivize the person on the other side of the table to actually help you, you know, make sure that you make money over time. So what you're saying is like that your financial advisor in your classic bank doesn't have your life as a priority. But you know, and I I'll, wanna, give you an, I'll give you an example. I don't want to make it personal though. So it's not a financial no, advisor. It's not, it's not a fault of the relationship manager or the private banker. It's just that the, the incentive system is built that way. Yeah. It's not their fault. So, and that's the difference between what we call these mutual funds and these ETFs. So two things regarding that. First one is, again, these books that I read and kind of like the statistic is 
when you start to investing, you just, oh, what do I invest? There's uh, thousands of products. There's what we call actively managed products, which is people say, oh, I'll buy and sell and I'll beat the market. I'll do better than something where you just buy the average market, which is the difference between a mutual fund and an ETF. An ETF is basically buying the market to make it very simple. 96% of these mutual funds that are managed by people do not beat the market. So you're overpaying to underperform the market. That's the first thing. And the second thing that I actually learned a few weeks ago, talking to one of my financial advisor D friends, who is a really good friend of mine, he actually told me, and this I was like, I knew it was bad, but I didn't think it was that bad. He told me, bro, I'm in town for two weeks because I need to, to make money. I'm like, how do you make, I know financial advisors make, make really good money. The, the principle is I find someone who has, let's say a million to buy a certain product. And he's telling me, actually, let's say 1 million, for example, could be five, could be hundred K. One out of the 1 million that I get from my client that I invest for him or her, 10% of that, so a hundred thousand is locked in for 10 years. Because the company that is providing this product knows that within 10 years, they're going to be able to do certain performance just with this 10%. I'm able as a financial advisor to get five to 10% of the whole 1 million. So 50 to hundred K upfront like that. That's my commission. I get 10%. And then he says, obviously I never tell this to any of my clients or prospects because they would never give me their money if they know that there is directly 10% of the whole amount that goes into my pocket and that is not invested in the future. But that's what actually what's happening. So, I mean, it's pretty clear, right? The entire, the, the, the finance industry is very opaque with a lot of kind of wording and difficult terms and everything. And it, and it, but it's because the entire financial industry makes money yeah. Out of all these people who just don't understand what to do. And they know, I need someone, I'm going to give you my money because I trust you because you're a banker, you have a nice suit and you have a nice tie. And So the products you mentioned, so those are typical insurance products. So these are ILPs, whole life, universal life endowments, where either you have a one lump sum immediately, you invest in a you know, million dollars or a hundred thousand dollars, lock it in for a very long time or you have a commitment to invest a certain amount of money every month for a very long time. These type of products, because they have very long lockups, they give incredibly generous commissions on day zero to the sales person, the relation manager, the, the bank, either the institution or the person, depending on the structure. And again, uh, and the fees that are, you know, if you look at the fee structure of these products, which are usually very difficult to understand, even if you look, if you read the prospectus, yeah. Uh, they are stupidly high, like, you know, somewhere between two and 3% per annum, which is a gigantic, I mean, it's more than the numbers I, I gave you, I used uh, for the example earlier. Uh, and so that's in fact, one of the other products that actually gets sold a lot for this reason. One thing in their defense is they're often also able to create some tax structure for the clients that might come from another country. And in the long term, you might be able to say, but at least that's how they feel better about the whole thing. But uh, nonetheless, very important to understand that the fees that often we don't even really know what we're paying and like it's all hidden and everything. And that most of the industry is not incentivized to help you out. And therefore you are the one who gets screwed because you're going to have to work longer or you'll be more stressed during your retirement. So that's why you should think about 
low fees and go for these cheaper options or products uh, like ETFs or what you what you guys basically are doing as Tashaway. Yeah, but look, and you were talking earlier about active versus passive. And uh, uh, so you're right. And, you know, when you look at the statistics, uh, you, you, you quoted the number, I guess, from Spiva showing that active managers actually underperform the market on average, you know, 95% over the last 15 years or something like that. So a gigantic number. The way we think about it is that it's now proven over the last two decades that security selection uh, doesn't pay off its costs. What does it mean? When you think about investments, you have two steps. The first one is I have $100 and I need to decide how much of these $100 to put in equities, stocks, how much in bonds, how much in uh, real estate, how much in gold, et cetera, et cetera. Let's say that you decided to put 10% in North American equities. That's your asset allocation decision. So now you know that you're going to have $10 for North American equities. The next step is security selection. I have, I have $10 to invest in North American equities. Do I invest in Amazon, in Google, in Microsoft, in General Motors, in Tesla, et cetera, et cetera. That's security selection. So the statistics you, you quoted earlier shows that security selection, so the process of actively deciding whether to invest in one company or another, doesn't pay off. Like professionals doing it as a job, over the last 95% of professionals doing it as a job, in the last 20 years, actually underperform the index, the market, okay? And that's why we strongly believe, and not just us, you know, all the books you mentioned actually say the same thing, uh, in investing in what are called passive instruments, yeah. ETFs or index funds. So, uh, you know, investing in, uh, again, ETFs being the most easy ones because they are traded as a stock, they're passive. They simply buy the market. They buy the S&P 500. They buy the tech sector of the US. They buy the, you know, global bond index, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, where there is impact to be made is on the asset allocation side. Depending on different studies, you know, BlackRock says 80%, Vanguard says 94% of the difference in returns between different investment portfolios is driven by asset allocation. So the decision of having 10% gold versus 15 versus zero mm. is much more important than the decision to invest your North American equities uh, allocation to Amazon, Google, or, or Tesla. Mm. And, uh, and that's why we believe, I personally believe, and that's why Stashway is also built this way, that it does make sense to actually spend time crafting an asset allocation that is, first of all, coherent with the risk you should be taking for that specific goal. We talked about the risk earlier. And secondly, that is optimized over time, not every day, over time, slowly, for changes in the macro environment and in the market environment. In 2022, you wanted more inflation protection. Mm. In 2023, you want a more a portfolio that you know start to leverage some of the higher yield you have in the market with treasuries, yeah. that you have some defensive positioning in case, in fact, the, the economy goes into a recession still maintain some inflation protection. 2024, we'll see. You know, so things change over time. You want to, over time, dynamically adjust your, your positioning. I mean, 
the next question is very logical and we kind of understand it after everything we've talked about. Why did you build Stashaway? What is it and why did you build it? So I started Stashaway with two, uh, two other people, Mino and Freddie, my two co-founders. In 2016, we started. And the short answer to your question is that the idea came from me and came from the fact that I was extremely pissed off with the banks. At the time, I was the CEO of a company. I was decently paid. I was saving money. Um, I, I started to accumulate cash in the bank, similarly to your, your girlfriend. Uh, so CEO of Zalora, accumulating cash in the bank and not really knowing what to do with that. No, I knew what to do because I have a background in finance. So I knew what to do. I didn't have time. Yeah. And uh, you know, I had two kids at the time uh, and a wife and a, and a fairly demanding job. And so I just wanted to not be good. Kind of, you know, exactly. exactly. Yeah. No, I just wanted to do something right, right? Yeah. So I wanted to do to feel yeah. good with myself. And yeah. I had two young kids, so I, I was in a phase where I was like, okay, I need to make sure that I take care of them, right? Yeah. So I had a little bit of a, you know, money suddenly became something a bit more important than, you know, you know, I had, you know, my daughter was actually recently born and my son was two years old. So it was very, very young kids. And as I was starting to think about, okay, I, I need to be responsible. That was, I guess that was the real thinking. I need to be responsible. And I wasn't because cash in the bank, I knew was a mistake, Yeah, uh, as we discussed earlier. And so I went to the two banks I was banking with. I'm not going to name them, but, you know, two very large banks. There's not many large banks in Singapore. No, no, no. One Singaporean, one international, okay. very large banks. <laughs> I went to the two relation managers and I told them, hey, I'd like to invest in a portfolio of ETFs on a monthly basis. Because that's what I should, what I used to do when I was back in Italy with very little money yeah. when I was younger. So I was yeah. like, I know what I want to do. I used to do it. Yeah. So I just want to do it again. Uh, and I said, I want to do it automatically every month uh, forever uh, in a portfolio of ETFs. And both Rashim has told me, yeah, I cannot help you with that. But if you want, I can sell you these beautiful mutual funds or unit uh, trust yeah, yeah, yeah. or these insurance products. So that's where you see first structure notes. Yes, because the, 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 the problem of incentives. Of course, they, they don't even they can't they cannot even help you. Of course, because they That's because crazy. they make zero commissions on yeah. ETFs, yeah. zero commissions <laughs> on ETFs. So but I didn't know at the time. I didn't understand it at the time. Now I know it very well. At the time, I didn't I fully understand it. But you know, they make zero commission ETFs. So they told me, if you want to buy ETFs, you can do it on the bank's platform. You need to do it by yourself. So ah, I actually looked yeah. into it, and then it was impossible to make to automate it. The, the fees were stupid, and the, the platform was <laughs> built in the sixties. Crazy. And so I was like, okay, this is not going to work for me. Um, and these are, you know, the two banks acted exactly the same way. They keep pitching me the same three products, eh? all of them. Uh, Unitrust, uh, insurance products like ILPs, and structured notes. And recently more structured notes than anything else. Again, structured notes, they, they make a gigantic amounts of, of, uh, of fees and they don't need to tell you because they're actually margins, not fees. And so they, uh, you know, it's, it's just, you know, they... Risk rewards imbalance is gigantic. Anyway, so that's where I was, right? And so I had this cash in the bank. I was incredibly angry with the banks. And, and then one day in April 2016, I, uh, I found out the, about the existence of uh, digital investment managers or robo-advisors, as mm -hmm. people like to call them. I don't like it, but that's a name that used to be used a lot. Uh, in the US. And the way I found it is that the largest shareholder of Zalora, a Swedish company called Shinevik, uh, led a funding round in the largest robot advisor in the US, Betterment. Yeah. And so 
this landing on my desk because I used to check their reports, the 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 Shinovic reports, and I read about it. I was like, okay, dig, you know, uh, fully digital, ETF, ETFs based, low cost, and I was like, haha, that's what I want to invest my money. Yeah. So I went on Google and I wrote Robo Advisor Singapore. Yeah. Thinking, let me find a local player. I'll invest there. And I couldn't find any. Nothing. Yeah. And that's when I said, aha, maybe like I should that. go back to my original <laughs> finance roots. You know, remember my my in, in a career started in finance and that's what I should be doing. And that's when I then I look for co-founders. I met first Nino, our CTO, then Freddie, our chairman of the investment committee. And uh, and when I found Nino, you know, close to two decades of, of experience building tech companies and then Freddie, more than two decades of experience in investing billions of dollars for institutional investors, I thought there's not going to be anyone that can build such a complementary experience team. And that's how we started. That's how the best companies are built, by solving a problem that you experience yourself and you're very frustrated about and then finding a way to scale it to the masses. And that was absolutely needed for everyone. And then, then there is just just... The education part, like people need to get educated and understand, but that's why the first part of this, this podcast was all about kind of trying to educate people on why they should invest and then how, and then there is platforms here because even the, these few simple principles we talked about before, it's still like for someone who's it's too much. So like, I want something that I can just put my money, it's just going to invest every month for me. And I know they have my best interest at heart in the long term. Because the person who built that or who started that actually had all these frustrations and, uh, and, and, and instead of complaining, basically said, I'm going to solve my own problem and then make this available to other people. But in fact, one of the uh, brand DNA tagline that we used to use internally in the early days was, we want to build the investment service we want for ourselves. Yeah. That was the way we th discussed it internally. And in fact, all of my money is in with Stash Away. My wife also has an account with all of her uh, kind of a personal uh, spare cash because the, 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 that's, that's, know, that, that's, that's the way oh. we, you know. That's so all, your, all of your money that you're investing for a retirement account, anything is all on Stash Away? All of my financial investments are Stash Away. Wow, amazing, amazing. So pretty much all of my friends are on Stash Away, basically, oh. which shows that. Uh, that's good to hear. I was actually saying, oh, I'm man. having Michele on the podcast. And we're like, oh, I know Stash Away, I'm using it. But some of them are not happy. Yes. Why are they not happy? For something you don't control, which is the markets. So how do you deal with people? Because people want to use a platform like Stash Away because it makes things much easier and they don't have to think too much about it. But at the same time, the less you want to think about this stuff, the less you are kind of educated the less you are patient with these markets and we've been kind of trained for the last 10 years, 12 years before COVID and even after COVID like that, it's just an up only mode. How do you deal with people who are not happy and complaining because oh, I'm down 20% of my money this year? And when is my money going back up? Like, yep. should I just use another platform because they do better? No, it's a good question. So look, uh, as we discussed a couple of times earlier, right? So the investment, a long investment journey will go through ups and downs. And I, let's use the same example as before. If you have a 30 years time horizon, you know you're going to go through five or six bear markets. We just went through one. Uh, and uh, through 20 correction, we went through one in 
Q4 2018, since we launched, we launched yeah. in July 2017. So since yeah. we launched, we had a Q4 2018 correction. Yeah. We had obviously a super sharp correction. We actually, you can call it a bear market, but we're so sure that honestly, I call it a correction in March 2020. Yeah. Uh, and then we went actually through a bear markets over the last uh, over the last uh, few few quarters. Uh, so this is what happened over the last six years. So it's coherent with what I said. You know, in 30 years, yeah. expect 20-ish corrections and four to six, five to six bear markets. Uh, what? How do we deal with it? And talking to our clients. Since the early days, so you know, when things, when the markets are going well, we've always told clients there will be ups and downs. Don't get overly excited when things are up. Don't get overly depressed when things are down. Continue investing, dollar cost average. You know, we have e-gyro solutions, so you can actually completely automate it. And that's the right way to do it. First, second, make sure you have the right risk level, because when things go well it will feel, oh, I should take more risk. Yeah. Why? Because that, you know, if I took more risk, I would have made 8% this year instead of 6 Fair. But then when March 2020 happens, and, uh, you know, in, you know, the portfolio makes, you know, whatever, minus 12% in a month, and the other one makes minus 14 or 15% in a month, that makes a significant difference. And then also they would, they would, the, fat, the speed of rebound is different, right? And so making sure you have the right risk level that enables you to be to feel right and mm. to feel you're doing the right thing even through the ups and downs is incredibly important now what we offer is extremely diversified uh we manage the asset allocation dynamically and over time we've done we've done well so we since we launched in july 2017 so we have a we have a bunch of portfolios but if you look at the kind of the core it's 12 portfolios we have also a few other products but the 12 core portfolios uh, you know, the great, the majority of them have actually overperformed the benchmark. Okay, uh, quite well, I was that. okay. Yeah. So the, uh, the majority of them have overperformed the benchmark. There is the higher, the higher risk ones. They have not. And the reason, there are two reasons for that. One is that, uh, we launched them, uh, later. Yeah. And so the, they, they didn't benefit from the earlier. So they, we launched those products around a year and a half later after the first one. And so they had less time. Uh, and the second one is that they had a, a China technology allocation in 2021 mm. that actually depressed okay. the returns in 2021. So, you know, yeah. looking back, uh, obviously, the, you know, the, that actually has depressed the, the, the investment during that year. And that was uh, kind of an asset allocation uh, imperfection during the year, which depressed returns. But, you know, it's now, if you look at it with a three years, four years uh, time frame, so since inception, let's call it, we actually uh, more or less at benchmark. So, you know, other, you know, last year, the higher risk portfolios have overperformed benchmark by more than five points. And, uh, and so we have continued to do, to do quite well. What do I say to your friends? It's a long, long term game, as I mentioned earlier. Buy you more, continue investing now, because if you're down, you're going to be able to buy a bigger chunk than in the future. And therefore you're going to do better in the future. And, uh, now is basically not the moment to take your money out. I mean, because taking your money out is like the worst thing you could do. Yeah, but in general, my, you're going to screw this uh, compounding. But yeah, but my my general message is even more simple. It's not even about continue investing when the markets are down and stop investing when the markets are high or, you know, withdraw when the markets are high. I think my main message is don't, you know, continue. So if you, if you continue to believe that you're doing the right thing, and you're 
So in practice, what you started, which was investing in a diversified portfolios with the idea of doing it for a long time systematically, and you still believe that's the right thing, keep doing it, it will pay off. And keep doing it irrespective of markets. Markets are up or down, it doesn't matter. You keep doing it and you do it for a very long period of time, that's the right thing to do. And it will give you your expected returns over time. So if you have a high risk level, you're going to land at your, you know, somewhere between 8 and 10% per annum over time. Mm-hmm. If you have a low risk level, you'll land at, you know, 4 to 5% uh, um, uh, over time. Uh, you just need to give it time. Absolutely. So someone now understood all these principles and they say, oh, I'll use stash away because I'm based in Singapore, in Southeast Asia, or I think even in Europe, so in MENA, you've started in Dubai or... Yeah, we are in Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, Hong Kong, and Dubai, UAE. Yeah. Uh, being there means we are, we are licensed in each of these five markets. So in reality, you can open an account even if you live in uh, Italy, yeah. you can open a Singapore account. Yeah. Uh, but we're not licensed in Italy and we don't have a bank account in Italy. You need to send the money to Singapore. Okay. In each of these five markets, we, are, we accept local money and we are... We are licensed locally. So kind of to wrap up today, I want to invest, but I, yeah, because we need to wrap up, you said like, how are we going to talk that long? But it's wow. actually already over. I'm shocked. And there is so much more we could talk about. I'm shocked. We're going to do another episode too about AI and all this stuff, education, all the stuff we want to talk about. Anyway, so to wrap up this episode, I want to start investing, but I'm scared because recessions and crash and oh everybody's scared and I have a lump sum what do I do I have 50k to invest now so it's not as easy as saying oh yes I'm going to start investing 10% of my salary every month what it's, do I do it's a good question so the uh, the short answer is it depends on how big of amount it is for you it's 50k 100% of your net worth or is 1% of your net worth yeah I'll give you my specific case. When I when we went live with Stash Away in uh, in uh, in July 2017, all of my money was in cash. Yeah. And that was okay. everything I had. Yeah. And so what I did is I set up a, a 24 months monthly plan. Okay. Where you know I took my cash divided by 24 and every month 124th of that cash was going to get invested into the diversified portfolio. I had, I had a few portfolios for different reasons. Yeah. Uh, time diversification, basically. Yeah, exactly. Time. Now, looking back, actually, it would have been better if I invested and, everything and on day one because the markets went up. Yeah, because yeah. the markets went up over yeah. the time. But, but, looking, but, but looking, exactly, looking back is too easy and on a risk-adjusted basis, it was the right thing to do. And so, if, but that, you know, I did 24 months because this was everything I had. So to, to answer your question, if it's 100% of what you have, I would take a long time, let's call it 24 months, 20, 30, and, and do it in installments over a period of time. If it's 2% of your net worth, you can do it in uh, in a month or in two months or in three months. Dude. Or another way to do it, and this is, you know, I heard uh, some uh, people that are trying to, this is a little bit of time in the, it goes a bit against my not the time in the market principle, but I heard a few people do this and say, hey, I have a lump sum, I have a 20 months or 24 months schedule, but, If the markets go down yeah. by more than 5%, I put two months instead of one. Double, yeah, okay. I double. Yeah. If it goes down by 10%, I triple or quadruple. 
If you go down by 15%, so in practice, you shorten your period. You're, you're going to get fully yeah. invested faster because you are kind of speeding up your, your time to market. Again, it goes a little bit against this, the time to market, yeah. but you know, it's, a, it's a principle I could, I could live with. Yeah, it requires a lot of discipline, actually, both. Because you could, like, you say, I have 24 months, I'm going to invest every month, 124th, but everything is going up, up, up. At some point, you could FOMO in and just say, fuck it, I'm just going to put everything because the thing is going up nonstop. So you need to keep disciplined. Or you say, I'm going to double the amount if it goes down. The problem is, like, psychology will tell you, if it goes down, it's going to go down even more. Therefore, I'm not going to invest double, I'm going to invest single, or I'm going to invest nothing, I'm going to invest Four, four times as much when it goes even more and then you end up like missing the, the, the dip. So it's yeah, very, it's which very is, difficult. Which is which why is, I think my suggestion, if you want to do this, is actually the, write it down. Like hold yeah. yourself accountable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, but they write. So, but anyway, the short answer is invest monthly, even in these cases. Like yeah. you, you, you can actually use the logic of dollar cost averaging and diversifying time risk, even if you have a lump sum. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time, Michele. And thank you so much for what you're doing for people in... In APAC and in MENA, because this is so important. And uh, I mean, this is so important because there's a big, big problem since forever with this kind of financial uh, finance industry and education and the new technologies and uh, the internet and making people understanding that this stuff is actually not that difficult, especially with these platforms. And that this thing, the earlier you start, the bigger impact is going to have on your retirement. It's so important. Absolutely. I agree. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks.